Is that some sort of weird beard on Jason? It is. What's going on over there? Wait, last time you said you liked it. You didn't, now it's gone gone beyond likability. Yeah, you? it's out of control. When it gets this full, it's not a beard anymore. It's like a problem. Yeah. No, no. I've I've bought products for the first time in my life. I'm actually taking care of it. Don't feed it. It will grow. <laughs> Are you going for full Santa Claus? What's going on here? Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey. Hi, everybody. Ow. Did I sound interested? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right, Jason, you sounded both interesting and interested. My direction before we started was like, okay, everyone, it's late. We've already been talking for like two hours. We just sound interesting and interested. And yes, I think you, you hit the mark, Jason. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm yes. good at following directions. How was, <laughs> how's everyone's weekend? It's been good. Nice day today after a lot of ridiculously cold weather. I want to say negative 50. Like, is it time just to <laughs> call it quits? Like, what do we do with that? It was negative 50 in the Midwest recently. It just I, proves that global warming is a hoax. <laughs> True. Um, <laughs> I'm not. It rained all weekend, so I didn't really change out of my PJs. Well, that's the other thing. It's been raining in LA, right? So yep. it's truly the end times. I know. And you know, LA does not handle raining well at all. I don't know. It rained for days, didn't it? Like mm-hmm. days in a row? Mm-hmm. Someone told me that. Someone just came back from LA and they were like the entire like week. Like no there it rained. Oh, God. Now we're discussing the weather. This is what I want to discuss. <laughs> uh, discuss. And Trisha, you can appreciate this. Trisha, you were out of the country when yeah. Rent Live was mm. on TV. Did you see it, Jason, Rent Live? No, I didn't it even was know on about it. A couple of weeks ago, the Fox put on a production of Rent. They got all like these E-list stars to <laughs> perform. <laughs> E-list, I didn't know there was an E-list. Yeah. It's not <laughs> quite F-list where you screw up your faith and go, oh, but it's not quite D-list where they have like some flexibility for being D. They're just E. So, I mean, by now, this is all old news. But the the thing is, is that one of the, the performers broke his foot the day before this live broadcast. So the broadcast wasn't actually live. I kept saying how that's really frustrating for everyone because what they did was air a rehearsal that they did the day before. So now imagine weird. imagine so weird. you are, you've been working on something for months and months and months. And then at the last second, they're like, oh, we're just going to show the rehearsal when you weren't at your 100%. And now you're the performer, so that's going to be your calling card when people want to know the kind of work that you do. You can show them rent, quote unquote, live. I don't know. I'm a rent head, and I was really disappointed with it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, don't bother. Oh, actually, no, you should see it because you should. I always think that you should see things that that so you can critique them. So you that's check it out. disappointing. Rent is like one of the only musicals I like. That's really unfortunate. That you only like one musical. I agree. No. Um, <laughs> Trisha, how was Australia? It was amazing. Amazing. Should we go? Huh? Of course you should go. It was about, what, 15, 16 hour flight? It was fairly painless. And I I went direct, which was lovely. And I slept for maybe a good eight to 10 hours of it, which I think makes it really manageable. Like, I think if you can't coach airplanes, do you know what? They now have these, I think the key thing in these airlines is that you've got to have that thing around your neck. You know how sometimes they have 
the part of the seat that if yeah. you pull the cushion up, you can lock your head in. So you can't tilt it left or right. You just are in a nice cocoon. They have that. And that was very, very helpful because then I'm not leaning on the person to the right of me. My head gets to go whichever way it wants to go. And I was really comfortable. I mean, like I left on a late night flight, so I should have been sleeping anyway. And I slept for a good eight to 10 hours of it. And so it was really, really, really doable because then it's like a trip back east. But another awesome treat, and I'm sorry, this is not an ad, but it's totally an awesome treat. And I'm just going to say I've never experienced this. So because I have my Alaska card and I'm like something gold, you can take that and go into um, the business class lounge or the first class lounge, depending on what they let you do at the airport for an international flight. So I did that in on the way um, to Melbourne in LA. I went to the first, I was like, let me just go see what's happening in this lounge. First of all, I didn't know the food there was for free. Like that's a thing people have food on offer, wine, liquor, all of it. So now I understand when people used to come into airlines and like, I'm like, why is that person so drunk? How did that happen? Why didn't the bar stop them? But you know what? They were probably in a lounge drinking all the time. So it was fantastic. My lounge also had a shower. What? Yes. It had a shower. Is this how the rich people live? I mean, for people who have access to lounges, that's how they do it. But I don't well, really have access to lounges. So I, I tried it on the way. I did it on the way back. Actually, I did that another friend's on the way Wait, back. you showered in the lounge? No, I mean, I didn't do that. But I was like, I could. I could have. <laughs> <I was like. laughs> okay, so let me tell you. Okay, so obviously Australia was awesome. But since I was in Australia, I was like, while I'm in Australia, why don't I go to New Zealand? Sure. Because, I mean, when am I going to get there next? So I took an overnight flight. One thing you forget, New Zealand's two hours. Two hours ahead. But, you know, the thing about an overnight flight is you get in really super early. And if you're going to stay at a hotel, your hotel won't let you in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I get there at like 8 a.m. in the morning. Brutal. And I was like, gosh, darn it. She's like, you know what? I'm so sorry. Our hotel is fully booked. So there's no one that's left early or anything. So the earliest we can get you in is like three, whatever. She's like, but if you want to shower, (laughs) we can send you to our sauna. And there's like a shower there and you could just take care of yourself there. Thank God. Thank God. So I was able to go in, hang out, take a shower, and then immediately went on a three-hour tour of New Zealand after having not slept all night. It was the only way to do a trip. Like, you know, I have to just keep going. I have to stay up. And then I crashed out like there was no tomorrow. Like, I think I crashed maybe like 6 p.m. Australia is so far away. It's like it is. Oz. Like yeah. I can't. Oh, that was cute when I just did. But it's so far away. It's it just feels mythical. Like I don't think I'll ever get there. Consider it, Jason. This one won't ever leave. I'm not. Yeah, you know, I would love far. to go, but I I just would remind us that 10, 15 years ago, Chris was saying <laughs> he never wanted to travel internationally again, and now mm-hmm. he's like talking about moving out of the Living country. There. So exactly, I think in ten years he'll be hanging out in Australia all the time. <laughs> I will say, though, it was really interesting. Imagine being in a city where I didn't spot any black person. It's crazy. Really? Did you draw attention? I mean, no, but it was just kind of interesting. I was like, I'm walking around a city and I'm like, listen, maybe I just didn't go to the right sections or whatever. But and in the end, I, I went to the there's like a whole section with African immigrants and it's it was cool. But like in Melbourne proper, the major district area, the downtown, I was like, wow, how is this possible? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, 
Well, let's talk about stuff since we're all here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jason, why don't you start us off? So you know that I, I usually shy away from bringing up education just because it's what I do in my day job. Of course, the couple of episodes we really went deep into education. When I was Very talking cute. about my experience at the department. I talked just infinitely long, so I'll try not to do that this time. But I think there's been an interesting dialogue going on among African-American scholars and writers about education for black children. And so, of course, in 1940, Brown versus Board, and that decision said to integrate the schools with all deliberate speed. I think it's just a fact that at this point, we don't have very integrated schools. There's also consensus that outcomes for African-American kids are, are awful. We as a country are failing to educate most black children. And so some people of all races, including black people, including some African-American scholars, are arguing that, well, integration is what, when it does happen, it's what gets better outcomes. And so that's what we should be pushing for. We should be pushing for integrated public schools where black kids go to school with white kids and other kids, and that's how they will achieve. Then there's another school of thought that says there's nothing magical about going to school with white kids. And in fact, even some of the most outspoken African-American leaders who've advocated for integration have actually not sent their kids to public schools. And they sent their kids to private schools. They may have sent their kids to Afrocentric private schools that were mostly black, which I think increasingly we see some families doing. Or they may have sent their kids to overwhelmingly white schools where their kids were a small minority. But in the public space, even while you have a lot of black leaders saying everyone should have to go to public school or or not everyone should have to go, but that we shouldn't be sending taxpayer dollars for private school scholarships and that kind of thing. And we should just be pushing for black kids to go to school with white kids and other kids. Many of those same folks are sending their own kids to private schools. I think it just raises a couple of questions. One, which is, is, is integration of schooling a worthwhile pursuit or is that really you know, kind of a mirage and not something that has a huge consequence. Those who choose to send their kids to private schools, should we be not really affirming their calls for keeping all taxpayer dollars in public schools and actually give more black families the opportunity to send their kids to private schools just as wealthier uh, African-Americans get to? And I will, I'll stop talking about this and hear your thoughts with one kind of closing part, which is when President Obama first got into office, this became a hot topic in education because Washington, D.C., there is a private school scholarship program that is funded by Congress. It's the only federal private school scholarship program. When Obama first got into office, he was contemplating getting rid of it. And if you recall, when he first got in the White House, he was shopping for where to send his kids to school. He did meet with D.C. public schools and looked at a couple of schools. And ultimately, he decided to send his kids to private school. And what a lot of kind of ed reformy folks said at the time was, that's fine. We respect your choice, freedom, your choice and your freedom to send <laughs> yeah. your kids where you want to send them. But then don't in the same moment, deny that choice for poor African Americans in Washington, DC. And ultimately, that program is still around, although it, w- it looked dicey for a while. So I will stop talking would love to hear your your thoughts on on this issue. I am sick to death of talking about school integration. It's kind of shocking to me that after all these decades that we haven't moved any further in this conversation. Like, first of all, you'd said this before, it is a mirage, this idea that, oh, we integrate the schools because the, 
the push to integrate schools acknowledges that other schools, entire districts and communities have been left behind. So you literally have to evacuate. Yeah. And so it's like, I, I don't want to talk about school integration. That's clearly not the problem here. And that's, that's my two cents. Trisha, what do you have to say? What's your response to that? You know, when I read about the fact that people who are advocating for, for public schools are sending their kids to private schools, my stomach clenched, right? Because how can you add? I understand that in some ways what you're doing is you're having a theoretical argument, not a real one, right? Because the stakes, the stakes don't really matter for you. So you're sacrificing a whole group of kids, but you're not sacrificing your own. And then I was drawn, I remembered that piece that Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote years ago, I think for the New Yorker, if I'm not mistaken, about, and she's an education writer. Um, she does quite a bit on in school integration, discrimination, lots of things. She had written about trying to find a school for her child. She had decided to go with the public school. Oh, right. This was the New York Remember? Times. It was the New York Times, right? It was the New York Times. Okay, yeah. For some reason, I want to say New Yorker, but yeah, it was the New York Times. I think it was also reprinted. But what was fascinating to me about her conclusion and why I think I always go back to her as a source of inspiration is that she's the one that says, if you don't make this a real issue, it will never change. So you cannot take your privilege as someone who makes a lot more money, send your kids to private school and then advocate for something different. Like you've got to have skin in the game. And she's like, because I'm doing this, I have skin in the game. I get to be vigilant. I think it becomes a luxury to then get in a pulpit and talk about public education as having value when you yourself are taking your privilege and using it elsewhere. How do you like? We all know that people have to have skin in these games. Do they though? Because like, okay, but so if I'm if I make enough money to have the choice to send my kids to get them uh, the education that I want to purchase for them, right? Um, Why does that? And I put my kids in that school. Why does that mean that I can't advocate that people who cannot make that choice should have better education? You can sort of like. I, can, I, I donate to homeless shelters every month. You could but do I it. I live in a very nice apartment. You can do it, but the stakes don't matter to you. It really isn't. It's just I conversation. Don't, I, I it's don't just know. Conversation. So but, if you're not if you're not willing to sacrifice your own children, right, Isaac style, like if you're not willing to do that, then nothing. Then then, then, I, then I don't buy that. That buy and that. you know what? I think she was right. I think you. Otherwise, we're just having we're just having a we're just chatting. Well, but can I just chatting about things I, that don't have but, any stakes? But can I complicate it for a second? So I just want to bring two it's things. Already complicated. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know we like simplistic solutions in today's United States, but I am going to complicate it. So it's interesting where you two went with that, and that Nicole is who I was largely thinking of. You could go a different direction, which is so. Yes, I can see her point, and you two, I think, are articulating well the two sides of it of, you know, well, send your kid to public school and then advocate for public schools. But you could go the other direction and say, well, why aren't we advocating for more families to be able to choose where their kids go to school, even if they're poor? And what I want to bring into that conversation is what's interesting here in this country, the concept of taxpayer dollars going to private institutions for kids to be educated is a right of center issue. But in the United Kingdom, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, and other, you know, kind of somewhat, certainly more socialist countries, 
it's actually a left of center thing. So in, in, in the United Kingdom, it's by default that you can send your kid where you want to send them. And so, for instance, you have families send their kids to religious schools. Again, it's like the system is there's X amount of dollars, taxpayer dollars, that follow a kid where the parent chooses to send them. Now, there are requirements on those schools, and there are certain accountabilities in place. But again, United Kingdom, Belgium, you choose where you go. So it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. You choose a school. There are like what they call kind of state-run schools, and then there are like what we would call private schools. But wherever you send them, a certain amount of money goes with them. And it's not, it's not, obviously, if you're really wealthy, you may be able to send your kid to a different school. But it starts with every family being able to make a choice about where they send their kid. Like, why isn't that where the conversation starts? Well, first of all, the question is, what are the choice, what are the choice options in a situation like Belgium and the UK and all of that? Because the reason why we landed where we landed is because we know generally public schools are not better than private schools. So that's why we landed where we landed. So the question is, if it's about school choice, everyone would automatically say choice for the parents, obviously. I want parents to have choice. But I think we understand in the U.S. that school choice is usually about abandoning public schools. Yeah. Really. Well, I just want to push back on that because, again, like places like the United Kingdom, like the public good is still, you know, quite a concept and an ideal. There's there's no like, again, in this country, we have this thought that like, well, if you don't go to public schools, the schools aren't fulfilling the public good. Well, no, I'm asking you, I'm asking you in the UK, though, you might have missed this a little bit. Are the schools of comparable quality? Because that's the question here. I think it's just like here. You've got state schools that are really good. You got state schools that suck. You got religious schools that are really good. You got religious religious schools that suck. I think it's kind of all over the map, but I don't think it breaks down by public or private. These, these things get put together like um, public versus private and school choice. I don't know. I'm just thinking about this, like really thinking about it. One, I disagree about the skin in the game thing. I've been thinking about it. I disagree with that because I I, I, find, I think it's odd that in this sphere with education, you have to put your kids in the line. But there's all sorts of other things that we advocate for that don't directly involve us or our family or we wouldn't make those choices. What I'm trying to say is that we, the three of us, could agree that public school should be a some level of quality. And if we could all, if we could somehow expend the time, money, and energy to bring the schools up, I feel like the school choice argument wouldn't be as critical. To me, that feels like a sidestep. And also, it's an acknowledgement that the public schools suck, and the solution is not to evacuate the kids out of public school. The solution is to fix the public school. I just... But you see, this is why I say skin in the game matters, right? Because skin in the game is your taxes. And what we know about high functioning public schools in wealthier neighborhoods is that the parents leverage their access to powerful people to make that school respond to their kids' needs, which poor people don't do. That's a good point. And that is why I say you have to have skin in the game because your school is a, your school, I mean, actually a couple of years ago, I had a friend that was working on trying to actually educate poor parents about how they can make their schools work better for them. Because that's a luxury that middle-class and upper-class people have and um, actually exercise so their kids are getting good schools. 
So that's why I, that's why for me, the skin in the game is so powerful because it does break along those, it does break along class lines. It really does. And so it becomes a cosmetic conversation when it's tied to taxes and neighborhood taxes. That's what I mean. You know, when we had, we, we had a conversation previously and we talked about how one of the ways we might be able to impact K through 12 was if when we were evaluating applications for college, you had to have indicated that mm-hmm. you went to a school with a certain mix. Yeah, I like that idea. I remember right? that. I was very excited about that. Right. But see, what the reason why we went that way is because we were acknowledging the, the power and the role of the parent there. Because the parent would say, mm, I don't have to take you out because this, in the long term, this is going to help you in college. I think that's I think that's right. And I think that... Well, first of all, I think one thing we haven't acknowledged yet, I think it's just important to acknowledge is our schools are segregated because our housing is segregated and there are mm-hmm. lots of historical reasons for that. So I just want to, that's just yeah. something that should be on the table. It's obviously very unfortunate for a million reasons. You know, when you, what you said, Chris, about like most of the kids are in public schools, we should be fixing public schools. I, I agree with that. Of course think, you do. But I think that uh, some people get where we're talking about in terms of supporting private school choice, because this is a somewhat different issue, but there's a question of whether the public school system or systems are capable of reform without intense pressure, or if they're capable of reform, whether they're capable of reform from within. I'm going to draw an analogy, and it's not necessarily a great one, but if you look at pre-Uber, the taxi system in like New York City, which was known mm-hmm. to be very corrupt, was not going to fix itself and without like a ton of pressure or like the, the U.S. Postal Service, like was not able to deliver anything overnight until FedEx kind of forced it through competition. I think some people would say, well, yeah, I support private school choice because I don't see how the public schools are going to get better unless there's that kind of pressure. There's that, that kind of existential threat to get better. I don't know if we buy that, but that's a, another reason why some people get in, in that kind of column of support. The reason why that analogy doesn't work though, is because unlike UPS taxi, like those are capitalist enterprises. So like Not the post office, the post office needs to generate money to, to pay for itself. Right. And they, our tax dollars don't keep the USPS running. They generate revenue that keeps them running. And that's unlike the school system. They're not generating revenue and they're beholden to tax dollars. Right. So, so in that, but I think that, I know you said it wasn't a great analogy. I'm not shooting it down, but I I just want to make that really distinct is that the the tax thing is really what it comes down to. So, having private schools, which are generating revenue, compete with public schools, which take public money, it's, it's not, it's not a fair fight. Although, let me just say real quick, you could argue though that if the, if the hypothesis is, for some systems that are broken or ineffective, you need an outside force for them to reform. You could argue that public education needs it even more than the other ones because it's so beholden on a single, on a particular kind of revenue because there's, there's like what you were just saying, which I think is right. You know, the United States Postal Service and, you know, taxi cabs, like they have to try to capture certain revenue. And mm-hmm. so there is an incentive built in for them to deliver. Or they a go obsolete. Service. But, right. But yeah. Public education, there's, the options don't exist for it to be like, well, I guess we should pack up. You know, private schools do it better. I guess we're done. It, it well, I mean, in happen. some ways, isn't that kind of what happens when they close public schools? <sighs> Aggressively do that. And, 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 and then a neighborhood school that is easy and convenient for a child suddenly is no longer viable. I mean, I think... 
I think the question becomes, I mean, Jason said something about the reason why um, schools are segregated is because of housing, right? Mm-hmm. But that is that was a reaction to the order to segregate schools. I mean, to desegregate schools, right? Well, it was, I mean, yeah, it that's a good point, together. although it's not like the housing was integrated before. But, before, but right? you're right but it that it, it then it drove people out, white people out of the cities. That That is absolutely true. I mean, so at some point, and so this is why, I'm, this is why I come back to skin in the game. Overwhelmingly, the research shows that white people do not want their children to go to school with black kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the truth of it. And so if you don't give them skin, they will never do it. So how do you give those people skin? You well, don't, right? Because what you end up doing with school choice is giving skin to people who didn't want it in the first place. Let's ask the fundamental question. The people who live in the U.S., white people overwhelmingly in terms of the research data, it shows that don't they don't want their children to be in schools with Black kids, even if the school is highly functional, by the way, even yep. if it's a high functioning school, they don't even believe it's high functioning. Yep. So or, or they believe that, one more black kid and it's all going to go to hell. Yep. Yeah. So so given that truth, though, and that's what I mean, like given that truth, how do we have this conversation? Because I feel like we don't we don't start from that premise. Let's start from the premise that people don't want black and white kids in schools together. So if that is the case. How then do we respond to this issue? Well, um, Trisha, Jason had mentioned that the reason why our schools are segregated is housing, which makes me think, are we looking at the wrong thing? We've been trying to integrate these schools and pull kids out of neighborhoods. Maybe we should be doing more to integrate neighborhoods somehow. Well, but you have the same problem Trisha's bringing up, which is... White people don't want to live with black people. Right. I mean, I'll I'll tell you, I had this conversation. But is is it better, different easier i don't know but to incentivize people to live in different neighborhoods you know I like mean, your incentive it, structure see this is the thing though you're what you end up coming to is an incentive structure how do you incentivize positive behavior oh, wait. that's where they have Actually, to have skin in the game right they but have also to I, I see the logical extension of my argument is gentrification which what do you mean hmm. why logically gentrification because my people. thing was like how do you incentivize white people to want to live uh, with people of color. And, you know, it, it, that happens in New York City because of like low rents and whatever. And so they're incentivized to move to these neighborhoods and they completely transform them. Uh, and, and, and then the poor and, people can't stay in them. That's exactly. the problem. So they, I, they get I, driven out anyway. So this is the thing. It's like maybe our question, let's not focus on the people who have choice because I think wealthy people always have choice. Yeah, Across right? the board. Across the the board, right? So the question always. So the question is, what what are the options for poor families in poor neighborhoods? Does that necessarily lead us to school choice? Because, like, I'm trying to think optimally. Like, what is possible in that world? Then it's like, can poor families pay money and actually get all their kids great education if there's not some fundamental contribution from taxes in a meaningful way like it just feels like like that's what i'm saying with chris's point i think chris was right like it feels like school choice avoids an is- a very powerful issue which is like how do poor kids and poor families get good education like can private school or private choices fully take care of all of that but pr- it's not about uh i'm frustrated i'm frustrated by the skin in the game thing 
<laughs> and, the, and the idea that we're talking about school choice and public education the same breath as if one will fix the other. It's like, if you're rich, you can afford a Maserati, right? Yeah. And let's say you live in a city where instead of putting motors in the buses, they have hamsters and wheels and that's how the buses run. And it's really super dangerous and completely inefficient. I mean, the answer isn't necessarily to make sure that people who ride the bus can get Maseratis. It's just that's that there how people be a, have decided it with education. There has right? to be a minimum, there has to be a <laughs> minimum standard of safety and efficiency for the buses. So that that's why like the school choice thing sometimes I'm always like, wait, why the fuck are we talking about this? These schools are literally crumbling. The money has to go to fix them, not evacuating the kids out and evacuating the money out. Like that's gonna make things worse. Well, except again, and this the the counter argument, and I'm not, I'm not saying I completely buy into this, but the counter argument would be, look, we have, for a variety of reasons, we have systems where there's very little accountability and very little, little fiscal management. And so when you talk about continuing to pour money through the same bureaucracy, the odds of getting better outcomes at the other end are low. And so then it's, do you completely overhaul the bureaucracy so that's what you have like in new orleans Mm -hmm. um although that is also a school choice system it's a public school choice system but it is a school choice system um or or do you give people you know here's the fifteen thousand dollars for your kid pick a different school i mean what you're saying chris is right you overhaul the system because like the question is what is everyone going to do with that fifteen thousand? where are they sending i mean at the end of the day like are you basically then creating a whole new an entirely new structure. Cause that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, okay, fine. School choice aside, whatever, let's put that aside. What then becomes the option on the table? Non-public school, like schools where you're just always paying money. Like what, what then, like do you transform all public buildings and schools that used to exist into a different entity? Well, yeah, again, like that's what you have in new Orleans. You've yeah. created a whole new entity and you have it in a few other places. In some I feel cases, like people really push back on the New Orleans things. What's what's your sense of that? Because I know well, I saw a lot of negative reaction to it. Someone, can you summarize that for the audience? Yes, there's certainly been pushback. First of all, the reason it happened in New Orleans is because of Katrina. Oh, say, say what happened in New Orleans. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, Katrina happened. And a, a little bit prior to Katrina, the state of Louisiana had established a structure called the Recovery School District, which was basically a statewide district that was designed to take over failing schools. But after Katrina happened and literally the schools were wiped out, the Recovery School District became basically the school district of New Orleans. And they created a system that they needed it to be charters because they needed the help of all of these nonprofits to help get the schools back up and running. So between you know a ton of federal money and a bunch of nonprofit organizations shipping in, you basically created a whole new system. And now it is a system that is completely of choice. Parents apply to a central, through a central system. They say, you know, this is my first choice for my kid. This is my second, this is my third. And they get one of those choices. And then their kids go to these schools and the schools, they are public schools, but they are run by private nonprofit organizations that are then overseen by um, well, they were overseen by the recovery school district. It's in a transition now where kind of local controls is coming back in. What could go wrong by schools supervised by private nonprofits, I guess? In New Orleans, it's nonprofits. Yeah. 
We're about to find out. But in other places, it could be private industry. It could be private, right? It could be. It could not be nonprofit. There, there are places that Which have is, yeah. that have for-profit charter schools. It's definitely a, a rarity, but there are a few states that allow that and have that. I think on the whole, I think the research bears out nonprofit charters tend to be higher performing. Better, um, yeah, yeah. Because you know, a private a private in a private venture is it still trying? They're they're beholden to stockholders, right? Right. And, and, and I, I think and what we've seen motive. is there's such a push for profit. Yeah. That yeah. You, you get incentivized to over enroll yeah. and you drive so hard to enroll that the, yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, what's interesting though, what both of you are touching on, I think it's, if there's going to be like a big takeaway from this conversation, what I'm coming away with is no matter what the big reform is going to be, whether you're going to offer better public schools than currently exist, or you're going to have charter schools, or you're going to have private schools. I think what you're both touching on is you need supply. You need an oversupply, right? Like if right now kids are in in schools that aren't working, you need to build a bunch of better schools, regardless of whether they're going to go there because they're zoned there or they're choosing to go there or it's private, it's a voucher, whatever. And I think that is something we as a country, regardless of whether we're supporting private school vouchers, public, you know, public school overhaul, public charter schools. We've never shown a willingness to do that. Like we don't, we don't pump because, and it's hard. I mean, you'd have to pump a lot of money to suddenly stand up new schools and kind of, for lack of a better term, drain kids from the low performing schools. And, and that is something that probably communities need to be willing to do. I mean, again, New Orleans is the example of, well, if some, if an event pipes out the whole system, then you can suddenly Stand up the whole new system. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like I the mean, drama of that. I'm into this, is kind of disa- capitalism. this is kind Can of disaster socialism, though. That, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. In that model, <laughs> in that model, for the because it's nonprofits. But I mean, yeah. yeah, I think what you end up having is you end up having to be forced into action, right? Instead of actually actively choosing action. Yeah, <sighs> I mean, well, yeah. I, 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 um. I'm frustrated. We're ending this topic, but I, I just want to put out there that I'm super frustrated about this entire conversation. Why are you frustrated? I just, you, you know want me. You to be different than they are? Yes. For, for yes, first of all. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, you know I, I get super exhausted about there being a problem over here, but everyone's going, no, look over here. And I feel like that's what we do with education all the time. And I, I don't even know how to address it anymore. Because like the older I get, the more apparent it is. Like what's the solution to, um, what's the solution to fixing crumbling public schools? Investing in said schools. Yeah. Are there other ways to do that? No, no, there aren't. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. But what about this way? No, you're wrong. There's one way to do it. It's invest in public schools. But what about this? And then there's like this whole music man song and dance thing that happens. And I'm exhausted of that. Like, let's just stop talking about bullshit and let's start talking about solutions. Can I ask, I, this comes up, um, this actually came up with a, in a conversation with my colleague a couple weeks ago because her child was- Name um, names. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. You know, LAUSD <laughs> and obviously they were on strike, you know? Yeah. And I said, can we ever imagine a future where schools are not tied to tax dollars in this way, such that a rich neighborhood automatically has a better school? You're talking about for-profit education. <laughs> I don't know what else you'd be talking about when you say that. I mean, can't we do it differently? Because it's like, property taxes, right? Yeah, that is a problem. Well, by, by the way, let's side note, because we, you know, we had this huge um, 
strike in LA. So your state, Trisha, just yes. to name names, as Chris just said, I mean, California, I would say is the most culpable in terms of, I mean, you have an, an enormously wealthy state yep. that's so under invests in mm-hmm. its public schools. And mm-hmm. you know, what was the thing about that LAUSD thing? I mean, you, you know, you heard the union side, you heard the district side, what few of them were talking about. The real problem is the state does not invest adequately yep. in LAUSD. Yep. And so it, in any way, in answer to your question, there are places where property values, yes, that property taxes is typically what drives it. Now, to some degree, every state and the federal government do a little bit of redistribution sure. so that you're spending a little bit more on poor kids. Now, some states do it much better than others. Um, but like California, oh, it's just so frustrating. There's such a need in LA and the amount of money they get per people in such a high cost environment. It, it's it's criminal. It's unbelievable. Well, you know, I, I I may just close this out, but I remember I remember years ago reading, because I do come out of the education space too. I remember reading some report from some Finnish guy, because you know everybody always goes to Finland. Finland, man. Everyone's just gotta move to Finland. Everybody's like, the Finnish schools are great. And I remember him saying, I can't don't quote me precisely, but I remember him saying, It's always interesting to talk to Americans because you know, they do a little bit of what you say, Chris. They're like is it class size? Is it, is it this? Is it that? Is it, he's like, Oh no. Like in the seventies, we just decided that regardless where any kid lived, they were just going to have access to the exact same education. It was not going to be tied to their neighborhood. It was not going to be tied to what their families were making. They were all going to have access to just good schools. That was it. That was the big decision we made. And he's like, and inevitably people will just like glide by his point and land on, but what about class size? And what about yeah. teacher Yeah, I'm tired <laughs> because, of the bullshittery. Like, you know, and saying- I think that's oh fundamentally it. Like Jason, you said there needed to be a massive creation of schools that were better functioning. Who would have the resources to do that? One private, would assume most likely the government, but yeah, I don't well, want I don't want a private sector because the question yeah. of again, if it's private, we know what private means. You've got mm-hmm. to make some money, right? Mm-hmm. And we know what that mo- what that model can look like. It could be better, obviously. It, it, some of it works well, but Trisha, are you drinking? I'm having a glass of wine, okay. like a normal like an, a normal adult having a conversation with her two friends. Okay, I. Mm-hmm. I I, I do enjoy the normalization of your, it. Your, of, my glass, of my glass of rosé. Yes, of your because let's let's make no mistake. You're at home drinking alone. We're on the phone. No, I'm together. But I, my sibling is in the apartment too with okay. friends. Okay, great. Okay. Man, I like that you tried to shame me, but I, 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 I no, you just wriggled right out of it. You wriggled right out of it. That was awful. Listeners, I just like to tell you that Trisha drinks alone at home. I just like she's in her room. It's dark. You know, she's doing an intervention on the podcast. She's patting, she's swirling her snifter, and I was like, "What is there?" I love it. It's exactly what you know about me, so I don't know why you're even pretending. Just texted AA. They are on the way over to your house. Pack up. They do military style extractions. Oh boy. Okay. Moving on. Trisha, talk about um if you're if you're sober enough. Tell us about uh your topic. <laughs> so I um a couple weeks ago, um there was a launch of a, a, a series, a docu-series, I believe, about Ted Bundy. No, it's not a docu-series. It is it, it's, it's, dramatic. Is it, 
It's a couple it's, episodes. There's both a like, docu- there's like some documentary aspect to it, and then there's also like a sort of acting portion, fictionalized too. sort of yeah. like Gisani Versace sort of murder that kind, kind of thing. thing. Yeah. Okay. So you know, so there's been a little bit of pushback on it because they cast Zac Efron, who in like just outside of the character is known as somebody really attractive and charming. So there was this fear that that sort of off camera persona was going to be sort of embedded in his characterization of Ted Bundy and someone, and there was, and it was interesting because a couple of people were pushing back on this narrative of Ted Bundy as this kind of like almost super villain and charming and, and, um, um, and super smart and super capable. And, you know, I think what where they landed was, you know, he was none of those things, given the way he actually killed the women, um, sneaking up on them, uh, breaking into houses. And so, in fact, what he what actually happened to him was that he was valorized by the people who should have been protecting the victims. So if you watch some of the interactions with Ted Bundy in the court, I mean, he was charming the judge or the judge was being charmed by him. Like, oh, my God, you seem like such a nice guy, completely forgetting that he was responsible for murdering women. And so I raised the point to Chris. I said, well, do we not have a narrative to center victims in these stories so that necessarily we end up valorizing the villain and focusing our storytelling and news storytelling on them instead of the victims, thereby kind of, I think, offering a culture of celebration of men who do really dastardly things. So are we trapped in this narrative of having to valorize really egregious behaviors by men if we can't figure out how to include or center victims in our storytelling? I think the short answer is yes. <laughs> I, I think the the problem psychologically, I'm not justifying or making excuses, but the problem is if you don't claim that this person had some superhuman ability to seduce people into liking him, then you're culpable, right? Like those of us who were in positions to protect people, children, whatever the case may be, if we can't point to some superhuman ability of the perpetrator then we are we're culpable we're responsible like oh then if that person wasn't so charming if that person you know did wasn't so amazing then why weren't you able to to protect like how could you let this happen to the victim i think that's got to be at least part of it it's always easier to say well look 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 at that person they're they're just incredible like they they, they, you know, ran circles around us. But what Trisha is saying about Ted Bundy is that he actually, actually wasn't that incredible. He wasn't that charming. He wasn't that compelling. Like, no, I know. But I think that's, I'm saying the reason why that narrative forms is because it lets people off the hook. It makes an excuse for how this could happen. Hmm. That's so I, disturbing, it, though. It is disturbing. I think that the construction of these tales is quite ancient. It's Joseph Campbell, hero's journey. So it, there's a hero, there's a barrier, there's a villain, there's a struggle. I feel like these stories get told, there's a framework in which to tell them, and we can't break out of them, even when the quote-unquote hero of the story is the villain. 
in order for him to do what he did, we have to believe that he was able to get one over. This was, I think, what Jason is saying. He'd have to get one over on people. So we have to accord him some sort of uh, supernatural is probably the wrong word, but some sort of supernatural ability to get away with what he got away with. You know, know, it's sort of like the concept of vampires, right? Vampires are literally murderers. They literally take women and enslave them and drink the blood out of them. But we, there's some mystique around them in the culture. There's this thing that hangs over them. Like, even though they are villains, like we, we want to think of them in certain ways. You said something about like, we do this to men. I think it's really interesting. That's a really interesting hook because there's not enough comparison to say how we deal with women if, if women were in these positions. But I think there is something, the fact that men are the ones usually doing these crimes or whatnot. And we, we want to think of men in a certain way in these arenas. One of the sort of most obvious pushback on the claim that he was handsome was that in many ways, part of the reason why people couldn't remember him was that he was kind of forgettable. So that butts that if you're a serial killer. Right. And that pushes back at the claim that he was handsome. But it was very much a narrative crafted and shaped by the media around this. And I think Jason's right. I think I think Jason's very right in the sense that we don't want to take responsibility for men doing these egregious things. Mm-hmm. And that in some ways there are these holes that they exploit in our system that if given a real sharp eye we would have maybe been able to protect victims because I mean, obviously this then led me, there's scales of victims. I mean, there's scales of villainy, right? But I think about, I think this one is clearer to me because he's a murderer. Mm -hmm. Let's like briefly revisit a little bit the R. Kelly thing. Think about how much rationalization is happening around it. You know, he's able to do this because he's really a genius musically. You know what I mean? There's just all these other claims about it. And then I'm reminded also of kind of the the comedian special that we talked about many years ago, Gad, well, not maybe months ago, Gadsby and Nanette. And she talks about how we claim these kinds of really egregious behaviors under genius, thereby giving yeah. people a pass. And I feel like we're doing that with a murderer. Jason? You, you brought up R. Kelly. And I think back to, there are lots of examples of celebrity, celebrity men in particular, abusing and raping underage girls and it being kind of celebrated or at least boys will be boys. I think it's very recent that all of a sudden, you know, really with the Me Too movement that we are really coming to terms with that. And it's interesting, this whole Ted Bundy conversation, I think with the Harvey Weinstein and with the new conversation about R. Kelly, it does feel like with the Me Too movement, we are, we are finally rethinking how we position people and actions like that. And I wonder whether with the with Ted Bundy in this conversation, whether that will happen with kind of this serial killer thing. But I do think it's just much more comfortable to think that, oh, they were just so ingenious. They were so so ingenious that they you know fooled all of us. And also maybe that they're exploiting male privilege. Uh, that's sure. In, in <laughs> that's certain, like I think that's totally it. I think in certain scenarios, right? You know, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking like, and I didn't see the movie Monster. I don't know anything about Eileen Warnos, which is the only female I saw it, killer so. I can think of. And I saw it and I saw the documentary, so but I might be I, able to answer some stuff. I'm really interested in what you're presenting in that, like, we want to be in awe of these men when they do these terrible things. And I just, I don't know if women get the same kind of awe. Because to me, that is really interesting. Because that would, well, I guess Joseph Campbell's stuff is really gendered as well. Because that's the, the hero's journey is always external. 
-hmm. for the hero. The heroine's journey is a return to home. It's usually home-based. And so I think there's a a tendency to focus on like a projected story and go a going out, a kind of aggressive outward push, which is why I think people spend so much time like rationalizing this killer's behavior, searching for reasons. And, you know, I mean, like there's just so much more sympathy and empathy offered there mm-hmm. and never centering the victim. And I think too, an attempt even to center the victims in this R. Kelly thing had so much pushback. There was so much pushback about it because there was this idea then that if I centered the victim, when they tried to center the victim, what ended up happening was offering opportunities for blame. Right. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's part of it too. Maybe it's an actual out. Maybe if they centered these murdered victims, people would say, well, why did she do that? Or what? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe actually it's probably best. I don't know. But it just struck me that there has been a kind of valorizing of really bad behavior to the point where we're doing it with a murderer. <laughs> so I just wondered if there was, but I, but I didn't know if there was another way to enter that story. And to your point, I did watch the movie Monster, who was, which was about a, a female serial killer. And it was interesting, actually, because even as she was a killer, the characterization of why she was a killer was based on her being a victim. It was based which on Which is usually victim. how we enter into these stories when women are involved, right? Exactly, right? Because she could not presume to be safe with these Johns. So the first murder happens because she believes she's unsafe with the John. Not only will he have sex with her and then, but then he will have sex with her, refuse to give her money and then harm her. So her, um, her position as a victim in that interaction necessitated that she take his life for her own safety. So it's weird actually, because, and then in a, in a future documentary separately, that's how she characterizes what was happening for her on the street is that she was a vulnerable person on the street. And because men are sort of iner- inherently aggressive to her, towards her, her defense was murder. So, so it's vic- actually really, you know, it's very part, gendered, right? Her victimhood is part of her story. Her victimhood is part of her story. But, but also her, she wasn't ascribed any supernatural powers. Like she wasn't unusually charming or unusually nope. strong or and none of, none none of, of those things applied. happened to her. And again, no. this is this is a single instance of one that we yeah. can pick up. So maybe it's not the same. I'm just trying to think. I think Jason might've hit something though is that maybe there's a cultural need to see villains in a particular way to, to sort of alleviate the culture's responsibility. It's much more comfortable to be able to say, you know, that there's this reason for it. And it's because that guy was so extraordinary. <laughs> That's just much more comfortable. <laughs> By the way, this is a little bit of a tangent, but Chris, when you were kind of listing the ways that we kind of valorize really bad behavior uh, from men, mm-hmm. I am always struck by the fact that we have kids dress up as pirates. Like <laughs> I know. pirates were so awful. Wait a minute. Um, I told you this. Yeah, like, we've had a rehabilitation of pirate story years ago. Yep. I, I, this was my. I brought this up to you well over fifteen years ago. Really? I don't, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't remember. That's and that's why you're saying this podcast. now. Oh my God, you've come full circle, Jason. You've come full circle. I used to say this to you when, when we were younger. Like pirates were rapists and murderers. Yes. I was in Disneyland recently and we went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, yeah. which is, it's very lovely actually. Because um, you're on water and it's nice. Well, it's, fun. it's great. It's a lot of fun. I know. It's great. And the day that I was there, it was raining nonstop. So it was nice to be inside. It's actually the first part of it's very calming. But as you go through, 
the story, which is now very much influenced by the Disney movie, right? But not enough because you go through like this Caribbean like village on the water. It's very quiet, and then as the ride continues, the pirates invade, and then as it continues, you see them like burning things, yeah, um, selling off items, like getting drunk, which. Even that sanitized idea of what pirates did <laughs> was very terrible. disturbing. Yeah. You know, you saw them chasing the women around as if the women would, could actually resist. You know, like the, the idea that was being presented, I thought, was already so frightening. But in reality, it's even worse. Yeah. Um, a long, long time ago, I read a short story called The Littlest Hitler. I don't remember who the author was. But in the story, the author contends with that idea that one time um, – uh, for like a third grade costume party for Halloween, someone dresses up as ha- Anne Frank and goes to school. And then one of the kids decides he wants, he's going to dress up as Hitler innocently. And just the reaction to that. And the author said, well, people dress up like pirates all the time. Yeah. And we don't think about that. Is there going to be a moment where dressing up like an SS officer is going to be, Oh, isn't that adorable? Well, you know, and it's, <laughs> it seems funny. Not yeah, yeah. But you know what? Honestly, can I just tell you? I think I thought I thought of something, and it's so horrific, but I'm gonna have to share it. I think we center those villains because they win, and I think their win is the kill, and the kill is interesting to us because they achieve their end. And so, mm-hmm. if we center the story around the victim, the victim has been frustrated. Victim doesn't win, and we don't even want story. We don't know what to do with stories. Yeah, that's really uncomfortable. And I think if we really, I think if we, if we started the story, because I actually one of the reasons why I started thinking about this, aside from the piece, was somebody said, "Let me just detail all of the um, the victims, you know, little details that he could find." And I started reading about them, and it just made me sad because what you what you encountered was like frustrated desire loss of potential Mm. like you were living in that space and you know what it was fascinating because i remember a couple years ago um the u.s decided to redo a show from abroad and it was the whole premise of the show was that one murder had changed a community Mm -hmm. i remember that Right. Remember, I think I can't remember the name right now, but I remember at the time thinking that's not going to work in the U.S. Murders happen here all the time. We never think about the repercussions of it mm-hmm. because we never let it ricochet out. Right. Uh, we don't go, oh, well, what's the parents going to do? What are the kids? You know, it just sort of happens and we move on because that's sort mm-hmm. of the cultural model. And I think that that makes sense, that, that, that that's sort of our preoccupation with that villain is part of that. We don't want to think about the the repercussions of a death. Yeah. We, we don't even really think, we don't even know how to manage death, I think, culturally. No, we don't. So I think that might be part of it too. The source of it is a discomfort with the, the loss. We'd have to sit with that. And yeah, it comes back to something Jason said, like right off the bat, focusing on the vi- victim has to admit that there was weakness or naivete or a lack of savvy or something. It's, it mm-hmm. comes from a really negative place. It's so much easier to believe that you were ensorcelled, just mm. completely swept up and mystified and all this by someone who was more charming and more adept and more all these other things. Like that's what we want to believe. You know, we want to, we want to ascribe to all these killers like Manson and the rest of them, like all this, this mythology grows up around them because it's like, wow, they were able to get away with it. You know, uh, it's not that we are weak. It's that they're preternaturally uh, like attuned and strong. And 
Oh, is it because we can't deal with our own vulnerability then? Well, if you, if, if you, if we have to start admitting that we're very vulnerable, then that could get us to a really dark place as a society. If Mm. we, that we want to think that there are predators, because if we don't, if we don't label certain people predators, it's just interesting, right? Because all this talk like to catch a predator or whatever, we never focus on what predators, who predators actually go after, which is prey, which is all of us. Yeah. But that's it to catch a predator, not to protect the prey. Right. Yep. Right. Oh, it's creepy. It's kind of creeping me out a little bit. I guess that, even as I'm thinking about it, I'm a little bit exactly, creepy. <laughs> exactly. That's why you want to focus on the bad guy because you don't want to focus on the victims too, too much because we're all the victims then. Right. Yep. It makes us feel like we have no control, I guess. That right. Was, uh, yeah. Oh, I don't that like this dark. at all. Um, let's move on. Um, <laughs> oh, 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 my God. Uh, thereby proving our point. I know. <laughs> well, you know what? <laughs> The no, first we topic must live we actually got an and answer. rest in uncertainty and our vulnerability. Yeah. We must live there. <laughs> uh, can I say at the end of this conversation, I remember in screenwriting class a very long time ago, the professor talking about Hitchcock's films and how a lot of his films actually don't ultimately try to explain away. They don't give explanations for a lot of things because he wanted to make people uncomfortable. And the reality is we don't know why some of these horrible things happen. You, you watch like The Birds I don't know if you've seen the birds. It is a horrifying movie. It yeah. It's like, there's not really an explanation. The birds just start attacking people. And you're kind of like, wow, if the birds actually started acting like that, we wouldn't be able to do a damn thing about it. Like we would be terrorized. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Okay. Well, let's move on to recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason, what about you? I have recently been binge watching Parks and Rec. I know I'm always late to the party. But <laughs> oh my goodness, I laugh hysterically at that show. It is so good. That's my wow. recommendation. Uh, Jason is 2000 late. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is keeping with the theme, right? What was the last thing he didn't see? We know what that was. So. Oh my God. Oh, let's not bring that up again. <laughs> Trisha, what about you? What happened so, to Better um, Late Than Never? What happened? Better Late Than Never is good. Um, so I um, I actually got through another book again. I'm loving my life right now. So on my flight to um, Australia, or actually, no, on my return flight, um, I had three hours to spare. So I sat and listened and read through Thick and other essays by Tressie McMillan Cottom. Love this book. Um, she's my hmm, favorite sociologist. I follow her on Twitter. And, I love um, you have a favorite sociologist. He's my yes. favorite sociologist. I want to have favorites <laughs> with everything. I want to have a favorite psychologist, but no. Right now I'm stuck with just a favorite sociologist. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really love, there's a there are a couple of there series of essays, but they come at it at the intersection as like a black feminist thought. And so there's a fantastic essay that I absolutely adore, and it's on beauty. And that's my favorite one. But then there's also a great one on um, R. Kelly. And um, I have to say, she ha- she made an, a wonderful appearance on Trevor Noah's show. And there's this really great conversation that they were having off the show, but taped. And he asked her to explain R. Kelly and what that's about. And she says, and I, her, her take was just fantastic. She says, with other children, we say what's wrong with those people. But with Black children, we have to say what's wrong with Black children. And so that it matters that they're, that he's doing this to Black kids. And so just it's just like 
just her commentary around a lot of things is just really piercing and on the money. She she writes about um, the failure of medi- medicine to take care of Black women with pregnancy. Um, she talks about money. She talks about why it's impossible for there to be a Black female scholar that gets paid to write, just write at the New York Times. <laughs> um, just a really, 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 really critical essays that I think are just anyone should pick them up. What's nice about it is you don't have to read the whole thing, right? You could pick one essay and read it and go, yeah, that's great. And then move on. Oh, so, um, But I would highly recommend the beauty one. That's my fave. Cool. I'll check that mm-hmm. out. Yeah. I, I was bumming around on Netflix, which is my new thing. Ooh. Bumming around on Netflix and I was just scrolling through. Okay. I'm going to be honest. My new thing is scrolling through, but I never actually watch anything on Netflix. I just watch the trailer and go, oh, that was fun. And then move on. It's <laughs> that like when you read the ending of books? I don't. I, I don't do say, that. Do you I, at I least go on, go on the Wikipedia and see yeah, where the plot was? Now I don't even have time for that. I just scroll <laughs> through, watch the forty-five second trailer, and be like, nah, I know how that ends. Anyway, <laughs> I was, I was scrolling through, and I saw uh, Michaela Cole was in some show. Michaela Cole, if you remember last season, I recommended that everyone see Chewing Gum, which is oh, yeah. great. She, she's this um, British black woman. She's a poet. She's an author. She's so incredibly talented. And I have to say beautiful. I, I really hate commenting on how gorgeous I think women are only because I feel like we shouldn't do that when we talk about how brilliant they are. But anyway, she's brilliant. And she's in a show called Black Earth Rising, which is on Netflix. Her, John Goodman, a whole bunch of other fantastic people. And in the the show is about, it's a political thriller where Michaela Cole plays a um, survivor of the Rwandan genocide in the 90s. And she now works in a legal office with her mother who prosecutes people for war crimes in the International Criminal Court. And it's got a lot of twists. It's got a lot of turns. It's extremely gripping. And like, it's the kind of thing you can't second screen. You have to sit on your couch and stare directly at it because shit comes at you so fast. Uh, I don't like to recommend things until I'm completely done with the series because I don't want to have another She's Gotta Have It. And I'm not... <laughs> I'm not completely it, done Mike, with this. Damn it. I, I know. I'm so sorry. I'm like, oh, should I recommend this? But like, I'm four episodes in because you can't binge it because it's because of the subject matter. I don't know how they shot some of this stuff because you listen about the genocide and like I'm in tears sometimes. Like it's it's so intense. But she's incredible. I really th- I would really love the both of you to watch it. And I'd like everyone to watch it. It's great. And because um, what I decided was for this Black History Month, I'm going to read up on the Rwandan genocide because I remember it happening when I was younger. I remember my dissatisfaction with Clinton's response. Um, But I'm learning a lot about that time in Africa and it's horrendous and I want to know more about it. So see Black Earth Rising. That's it. Wow. Sounds good. That's it. Michaela Cole. She's my favorite poet slash renaissance woman. (laughs) We all have Who's your favorite favorites. sociologist, Chris? Oh, I don't have one. I have a favorite gynecologist, though. <laughs> no. You all, you all can get a favorite sociologist. I, I love that you have a favorite sociologist. I'm not kidding. I think that's great. Although, <laughs> how many sociologists have you sampled? I sampled quite a few because you remember. I remember. I don't know if you remember this, but in college, I really wanted. I was tempted to become a sociology. I major. remember that. I don't know if you remember, but my minor is sociology. Oh, so you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, but who gives a shit about minors, right? What was your minor? My minor, Jason? my minor ended up being philosophy, though. In the end, of course it did. Jason? Well, wait, what was your major, Trisha? It was psychology. 
psychotic. So I didn't have a minor because I was trying to get a master's at the same time as my bachelor's. Such okay. a nerd. All right, here we go. And on that note, everyone, Jason is, Jason is better than you. <laughs> did you. Well, actually, I didn't even know. Did you Did you end up doing it at the same time? Did you do that? Yes, I did. Oh, you did, of course. So I was cool. talking about you earlier, Jason. Uh, we just connected on LinkedIn. Like <laughs> yesterday, oh, yeah. we just got, we we just got around to it. About LinkedIn, really. We just got around to it, and I clicked on it, and um, someone was like, "Your friend was the assisting, the assistant secretary of oh, education." God. Did you say he just listened to the podcast? I was, <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, you know, I always knew Jason was gonna do something big back when we were teenagers. Like this guy's going places. And I'm definitely going to ride his coattails. <laughs> and on that note, everyone, have a great night. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs>